I'm excited to share with you this morning and to kind of um, talk a bit about what we've been talking about, be the message, and about how to use your life circumstances in such a way, especially the painful and difficult ones. And I've asked uh, Glenn Ferdine and, and, and Tom Hagen if they'd come up and share with us. They've had the opportunity to share in, in a couple of adult classes some of the stuff that's going on in their hearts and their lives. And so I want to begin this way because we're talking about using all of your life, especially some of the difficult things, to be the message. And, uh, and so, one of the realities of life, which all face it, that at some point we will go through difficult circumstances. You'll be tested through trials and suffering, and then the question is, how do you use that? What do you do when you um, lose a job? Or you are finding yourself in a very tough work environment? Or you're, you're experiencing the pains of a dysfunctional family system, and you begin to wake up to what's really going on? How do you use these kind of things in your life when, when you hear the news of an illness of either your, your own or someone close to you? Or there's a tragedy that debilitates you or in some way even is life-threatening? Well, these two guys face that and their families have faced that. And so I was going to ask Ron to begin with, um, Glenn, if you would just kind of tell us a little bit about your past year or what happened. We each uh, got 10 minutes here, and then he said, no, 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 you've got to cut and paste. So you're going to get the cut and paste yeah, version yeah. of this. We don't have an hour and a half, Glenn. We had to write this down. Yeah. Okay, July, Saturday, July 17th, I was down at my daughter's house in Wyndham, Minnesota. I was cutting down a large, large cottonwood tree that was hanging over the lake. The tree got hung up on the tree next to it, and it kicked back on me, sending me about eight feet back up onto the yard. It was lying across my legs. My left leg was broken, and I also had a shattered ankle. My right leg was, they thought was broken, but it was just severely lacerated. I was airlifted to Sioux Falls, and back on Monday, transferred back to Minneapolis for surgery. Tuesday night, they put a rod in my leg from my knee down to my ankle, and they also put a plate on the, my left side of my ankle. And with that, I have 10 screws in my leg, and I'm now in the process of physical therapy. So at 40 years of age, I mean, that's a pretty yeah, right. incredible <laughs> story. Come on, yeah. Uh, no, over 70, that's pretty amazing. And uh, what's the, what was the kind of healing? What do they think it would take for you to... Uh, they're talking about it's going to be a year. I'm wearing sandals. <laughs> you look like Jesus, but that's good. <laughs> I dared somebody to paint my toenails this morning. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, I, my leg is still, my, uh, I'm still swollen up and will be swollen up for quite a while. Uh, there's a lot of metal in my leg that uh, my body's getting used to. So I'll probably be out about a year out. Tom, tell us about your situation. Last uh, June, I was told I have bladder cancer. And that was a real surprise. I've enjoyed good health all my life. And I didn't feel anything. I had no idea I was sick. It just came in out of the blue. But there it was. Uh, learned more about cancer than I care to know. I found out that there's uh, all different types of bladder cancer. Mine is an aggressive one. And so this last year I've had uh, three laser surgeries followed by a series of treatments. And I go in for another treatment on Tuesday. And one of the things that I know, my wife and I have been here at our church for many years, um, there's a number of you in the audience that have gone through some deep waters yourself. I imagine there's people here today that are feeling real pressed up against the wall. And I think the question that we all ask when those things happen is, 
the Bible says God can cause something good to happen out of something bad. Can he really do that? Well, you know, it, sometimes when it rains, it pours, and that happened in your situation, Glenn, because you get home, your wife's taking care of you, and all of a sudden, it's, you know, not long after that, you get other news. Why don't you share that as well? Yes, I was two weeks after uh, uh, this accident for me. I'm, uh, I'm home, and Lois come walking down the hallway and, and said, uh, I just got a call from the nurse. I, got, uh, I have breast cancer. Now I go from physical pain to the mental heartache, the love of my life has cancer. The cancer is not spread into the lymph. She does not need chemo, and she is, she's had surgery, and now she has had many opportunities through this to share her faith also. Yeah, so in that process, just share a couple things, if you would, of how you were encouraged. And sometimes when you go through that, you, at a certain point, some of us would go, well, what do we do? What do we say? How do we? What, what have you found to be helpful? Uh, one, the, a lot of things, uh, just a couple of them that I can mention. Um, I found out that uh, there's men here in the church that have gone through bladder cancer. A friend who used to be here lives out in Idaho. He gave me a call and said, uh, did you know I've had bladder cancer also? No, I didn't. And it was uh, these friends that was their way of saying, uh, you're not alone. A number of you have gotten uh, notes, emails, phone calls. Uh, just this morning uh, out in the foyer, a couple of friends came up and said, how are you doing? Uh, we're praying for you. Um, that's a pretty wonderful thing to know that you have a network of people uh, that are on your side. Yeah. And Glenn, what about you? How would you? I could not go to the uh, hospital the day that my wife was having surgery because I'm laid up. And uh, with that, there were, uh, from our church family, there were three that came over. One lady brought over some uh, a meal. And uh, Tom and Lanny Craig came and uh, pulled chairs up close to me. And we had a time of sharing and praying for me, praying for my wife, and supporting us both at the same time. So this is part of the church family and uh, we are so blessed. This could have been much worse for both of us, but we believe in the answers of prayer. We had over 200 cards, and uh, most of these cards said, we are praying for you, and that is something that both Lois and I hung on to, and we just appreciate it so much from all those that did send that note to us. So when I, when I hear something like that, you know, we talk about be the message. Be the message isn't just an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. It's a body thing. Family comes around. And, and helps in that sense of being the message. And one of the things we're talking about is how do you take this, you've been given, you know, you hear this news, you start to process it, how do you use it? Um, what would your thoughts be in that, Tom? Glenn gave me a little booklet that says, don't waste your cancer. I, I think you can fill in the blank, don't waste, fill in the blank, whatever it is. And I'll just read something here. Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. There are reasons why we wind up where we do. Here's what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And so it is with cancer. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is infinitely worthy. This is a golden opportunity to show that he is worth more than life. Don't waste it. Remember, you're never left alone. 
you will have the help you need. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Glenn, why don't you share, if you would, kind of what's been meaningful to you. Uh, reading a number of different books at this time, uh, I had, uh, had the opportunity. So here's a book that I uh, just finished up. You'll get through this by Max Licato. A couple comments out of this. You'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive. But don't despair either. With God's help, you will get through this. Also, he has a verse in here that I it really jumped out to me. It's Jeremiah, all up right here, isn't it? Yeah. yeah this whole book <laughs> is marked up. Yeah, I could go into deeper. But no, that's all right. You keep going. Sorry. Uh, Lord, uh, this is out of Jeremiah thirty twenty four. The Lord shall not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the thoughts and intents of his mind. This season in which you find your, uh, yourself may be puzzling to you, but it is not bewildering to God. He can and will use it for his purpose. Many years ago, 50-some years ago, I memorized a verse that became very near to me again. First uh, Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord thy God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to the hope which is in you with meekness and fear. I have found that I had many opportunities. God's given me the boldness to be able to speak out regarding this uh, events that have happened in my life. I often say I'm looking for God to put himself on display and I go around looking for God on display in nature, in what I hear and see, and I just revel in what God is doing, putting himself on display. But now I recognize that he's counting on me to put him on display. We didn't sign up for a crash course in pain and suffering. Perhaps you didn't either. But your mess and my mess will become our message if we recognize it. Before they sit down, I would just like to say thank you to both you guys. And for your, just over the years, your input in my own life. And um, one of the great joys we have is that we have people in this body. I talk often to some of the younger families that are coming to our church, and they, they will always comment on how grateful they are for those who um, have been here a long time and have gone through things and can stand here and testify to that. And, and more than that, you have an opportunity. You know these guys, you have a chance to talk to them and just say, you know, how did you go through this? Grab someone for lunch and to do that. We really want to honor one another in all our generations here within this body. But before I kind of ask you to sit down, I want to pray for you. And I know there are people here who are going through just a, what Tom said. You're, you're pressed against the wall with a really d- difficult circumstance in your life. Or you know one you know, someone, one degree of separation who's going through that. So I'm going to ask you to join in prayer. I want to pray for these guys and for you, but I also want you to be praying for those that you might know right now need your prayer um, in their life. Let's bow our head and pray. Father, I so thank you for Glenn and Tom. I thank you for God, how they want to use all of their life, even the difficult things in their life, to bring glory to your name. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing, even using this moment. 
And Father, I pray for each person here, particularly for those who are themselves in the midst of it, either individually or in their family. And for those who are praying for that, we know maybe um, just one step away from us. We ask that you would be near them. They would be awake to your presence. In Christ's name, amen. You know, the thing we want to talk about this morning is this idea of using what's going on in your life, specifically those difficult times when you're into suffering and trials and how do you use that not wasted as, as we had just heard. And, and when I was thinking in, in processing this, um, I had the opportunity yesterday to go to a funeral of a young man, married man, 33 years of age, for the last couple of years. In fact, his mother um, attends our church from time to time. Died of a uh, aggressive germ cancer, and, and his 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 whole service was a a time of praise to to God, and he kind of lived out his last few years in that way, where he just began to experience more and more the presence and the love of God in the midst of this difficult time. But he did leave behind a young daughter and a wife and a whole family. And his dad got up and shared, and I can't even imagine what that would be like. I was thinking to myself, you know, when I was 33, just a couple years ago, um, <laughs> about the age of what my kids would be. And I, I, I wouldn't want to leave them. And, uh, and one of the things that his dad said was really interesting. He said, you know, we talked one time with my son near the end of his life when they knew he didn't have long to live, and and they were talking a lot about um, this illness and stuff. And he said, you know, cancer is, um, there's no purpose in cancer. It doesn't have brain cell intention, purpose, uh, you know. And then, and then they started talking about suffering. And in one sense, they said, you know, there's no purpose in suffering. You actually have to choose to put the purpose into it. And I thought that was really interesting. You have to choose to use it in whatever way you want to. That's really true no matter what's going on in your life. One of the reasons I love our church's mission statement is because it's not just something for a lot of different people, but it's something I can apply for myself to, tell, you know, to help all people take their next step to know more intimately, to follow more closely, and to become more like Jesus. What a great thing. And in, in, in the past, and especially in the last year or so, at times when I've gone through some difficulty, I've, I've just come back to that little statement, and I, I just made a purposeful choice that said, God... As difficult as things might be in my situation, which really are minor in some ways to what others are going through, I, I remember kind of saying to myself on, time, on occasion, God, what a great opportunity to use this to let you fashion and form me to be more like your son. Help me buy it up. I mean, people would pay. Well, maybe not. But, you know, people would, we want that opportunity. And there is a sense you have an opportunity to begin to purposely think about what's going on in your life and how you intend to use that for God. Well, I wanted to take a moment to, to, to kind of just talk about some scripture that I think is just a, is a good passage of scripture that helps us understand that and then make a, a few thoughts and, and then we'll just kind of get on our way and get hamburgers and everything else that we plan to do, okay? It's not a really nice day, so why don't we just stay in here for a while? Yeah, right. Okay, Acts chapter 16. If you want to follow along, there'll be scripture on the in screen. There's also a Bible that you want to pull that open. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. So we're going to look at it. It's a story of, of Paul and Silas when they came to Philippi and they got thrown into prison. 
And if you've, um, you're new in your journey in faith and haven't been in the church much, this is kind of a really interesting story. Um, I can't give you all the background on it, but I'll give you a little bit of the background. You know, what's, what's really happened is that Paul and Silas and, and their companions, Timothy and Luke, we know at least those four were probably with them, were over in a place called Asia Minor, and they were doing everything they could to, to, to find a way up through Asia. But at certain points, we're told, according to Scripture, that Paul and his companions were forbid from preaching the word in the presence in, in the province of Asia. Now, you're kind of thinking, oh, forbid by a bunch of other people. And it says, by the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting thing. A little further, it says, they tried to enter Bithynia. So, again, they try and push into the, to tell people about Jesus, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. And then, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So they're over in Asia Minor. They take a a ship over to Macedonia. Macedonia is where we consider modern-day Greece, and where they landed was up on that um, higher end of of Greece, which is this whole area called Macedonia. And they landed in in a city, and were in the city that was kind of one of the first main cities there is a place called Philippi. Now, Philippi is an interesting city, just to know a little bit of the background. It's a Roman colony, so a very prestigious city that they had come to. What made it a Roman colony was that when, when they had so many Roman soldiers in the army that if they all came back to Rome, they couldn't really support them. So they would often take retired Roman soldiers and put them in a place where they wanted to build a further outpost for the Roman kingdom. And Philippi was a good place. It was on a main road. It was in a good place to have this Roman colony where it would kind of be this outpost. And, 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 and if you read Philippians, Paul even talks about that, kind of appeals to that in that book at one point. But here it is, this Roman colony, and, and, and it's out on the edge. But what they didn't know, necessarily coming into it, Paul and others, when they came there, they didn't find a lot of Jews. And that's how they would go in, because they were Jewish. They would come in, they'd share the Old Testament that pointed to the coming of the Savior Jesus. It was the easiest way to kind of be the message and share the message and evangelize to the people, would go to the Jews because of their Old Testament background. Well, they went there. It would be almost like they came there. And you, you find in the Scripture that, that what we find in Acts chapter 16, verse 13, on the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. That is the clue that there weren't a lot of Jews there. There are so few Jews that when in those kind of places, if they didn't have a synagogue, which was a, a building where they would meet, they would have a place of prayer sometime out there. It would almost be if you came to a town, you came to a town, you said, you know, we came to the town and there was no church building there, but we went out to the park, and at the park they were sitting around a table, a group of people who were praying. That represented the church. And the church is in a building, and in Scripture it all means the called out ones, the ones who assembled together, a gathering like this, it's not a building, it's a group of people. And that was the church there, but it wasn't, there wasn't a building, it wasn't a synagogue. And one of the first converts there was a very wealthy woman, and she wasn't a Jew herself, she was a worshiper of God, they called them seekers in that day, who would be meeting with these Jews because they were attracted to the God of the Old Testament. And she was the first one, and she was a, a, a person who was a dealer of purple cloth. 
She came from a place called Thyatira in Asia Minor where they, would, they made purple dye. And, and so in a sense, she's kind of like a sales rep. She was kind of a manufacturer's rep of this purple dye in this area. So she kind of had an in and she made a lot of money kind of importing that purple dye into that place. And she was a wealthy woman because it says that she was the first one to receive Christ and to, to, to follow the message that was given by Paul and Silas and their companions. And as a result of that, she was so open, she invited them to stay at her home. So she must have had a fairly large home so they would stay there. That gets us to the story. In chapter 16, verse 16, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted, predicted the future. And that spirit was a spirit known in that area. It was called a python spirit. It came from the, the place of Delphi where there was an oracle that would talk about the future. And, and, and the spirit would be such a spirit that it would, it would come over the person and begin to speak through the person, kind of like they would channel this spirit. And, and one of the Greek words is the word ventriloquism, this idea. There was almost a sense that she was a puppet to this spirit's ability to speak through her. And people go, was she really telling about the future? My guess is in some ways, if they're truly, as we, you know, Scripture says they're demonic spirits, they would know a whole lot about how people act. So they in some ways probably could predict the future, just like when my kids were little, if we went to McDonald's and someone said, what do you think your kids will order? I'd say, well, they're probably going to order. You could predict this pretty high, a happy meal with chicken fingers. So the ability to be correct could be really just by observation, if you want to put it that way. So anyway, that's kind of a sign. I didn't mean to get into that. But anyway, um, so she, she actually earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Which is an interesting thing, because all of a sudden we see that she kept this up for many days. So everywhere Paul and them are going, she's behind them going, this is the people of the Most High God, they tell you about salvation. Everywhere she's going, she keeps saying that. <laughs> Until finally Paul, we read, becomes so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Which the Spirit did. At that moment, the Spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they're now ticked off. Because it's all right that Paul and Silas come, they're teaching some things, but now their teaching is affecting the economy of their own life, but also the city itself. Because more than likely, this slave girl was known in this region, in this area. You know, when it hits your pocketbook, don't you get a little angry? That's what's going on. They're upset. And, 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 and we are told, when the owners realized that their hope of money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by ad- advocating customs unlawful for us Romans, us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into the prison And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So what you get this idea, this picture, first they're upset, these owners are upset about what had happened to their their source of income. They take Paul and Silas, they probably rough them up because those are the two leaders of all the companions. And they bring them to the magistrate. 
There's no due process. They're just told, you know, this is what's going on, and they sentence them. So they obviously don't get into who are you guys get much into that. They just sentence them to be beaten with rods. Now, to get the picture a little bit, you have to understand what it's like because it's not like our court systems where you have to have, you know, you go down to the city, etc. When I was in Ethiopia, I was there um, and went to an outer part of Ethiopia where we were um, doing some work for a group called Food for the Hungry. And when we were going out, there was a 10-hour drive. It was through fields and rivers, and it was just like this kind of a scary thing to even get there. You'd be driving on this little path through elephant grass, and people would be running out of the way, and we're going 50 miles down, we're flying. At one point, we come to a town, one of the last towns before you really get into the outskirts of what's going on there. We get out of the car, because all these people, kids and all, you know, their, their cattle, their sheep, are, are surrounding the car. We get out. One of the guys had a new camera, just knew at that time, the digital thing. Far too expensive for any of the rest of us to have, but he had this really nice digital camera. And as the people are coming towards us, he started taking pictures, and all of a sudden he's taking pictures. One guy starts yelling and runs towards him, grabs his camera, and he's just upset. And one of the things we knew is that you don't take pictures of military people or police people or government officials, but in the crowd, who knew? We didn't, couldn't see that. So they grab us, like Paul and Silas, and they kind of bring us into this, this little courthouse, which is just a little hut. And we sat there for about an hour and a half, two hours, until they finally made a decision to bring us to another town where we went to another town. And we sat there for a couple hours, and they were going back and forth about what to do with us. I mean, in many ways, I'm just going, I, don't, I can't understand the thing they're saying. Our interpreter, our guide who was bringing us out there, was doing all the negotiations. They finally go out of the room, and they, and they do this thing, and he comes back, and he goes, okay, we're ready to go. It's like dark now, and we're going to try and make this trip back. And, I go, and so we're in the car. We, we decide not to say anything. He goes, first of all, what really made it difficult is they wanted just to film while they opened this thing. We, there's, no, there's no film. We couldn't tell them, you know, because they wanted to just destroy the film. But then we talked to him, and the guy goes, you know, here's the deal. My cousin knows his uncle, who knows, you know, and it was all about relationship. And because they had established some kind of relationship, they said, okay, these guys are okay, and we left. Well, so here's what, that's kind of a picture you get. They're in this place, they're in this village, they're thrown into this place, there's no due process, they're thrown into jail, they're flogged, and they're beaten with rods. We know this was quite insulting to Paul because he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, we had suffered and had been insulted at Philippi. Paul was a Roman citizen. For them to do what they did could cause them, even as a town, to lose their Roman status. Because when you get to the end of the story, we're not going to read about this, when they let them go and they, they get, shift them on their way, they want to get them out of town as fast as they can. Because they didn't do it properly. Now you have to understand, being beaten with Roman rods was an incredibly severe punishment. We, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, that Paul was beaten with Roman rods on three separate occasions, and this was one of them. You see, you'd usually flog someone with a whip, and when you would do that, the Jews were humane in their process. They would do 40 minus 1 because they had to come to understand over time that 39 is about a limit that a human body can take when they're flogged. This punishment was so great, you never, you never would give this to a Roman citizen. So they, didn't, they beat him with rods, a Roman citizen. It's in their laws you don't do that. 
And what they have in their whole punishment, if they would do it to a person who they would put under this punishment, they would beat them, and there was no limit. So here are Paul and Silas. And after being severely beaten, they're thrown into the inner part of the prison. When I um, had an opportunity to study over in um, Asia, um, that, that whole area there, in uh, Turkey and through that area and Greece, and then I did some study in Jerusalem. But I was in Philippi. I was in the city of... And I was actually shown what would have been that prison because it was a rock-hewn kind of cave that you'd go in and then it would get darker and it was dark and it was damp. And so when they say they were put, you know, they were put in the high-security part of the prison, it's not like what you think today. There's, a, there's a kind of a, a, a place where the jailer would watch them and then there'd be one place internally where they would be bound by chains to make sure they're in the inner security, high security part of the prison. That's where they were. Close to death, shackled and chained to a wall. And now let's listen to the story in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I just think that's incredible. About midnight, in the midst of what was going on, they made a choice. They chose to sing, to praise, to give thanks. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains were loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The guys like this. And they replied, and the jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and asked, because he must have, Paul and Silas, as they're singing and praying, and when they, they must have talked to the jailer and founded a story, he says, Sirs, what then must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all to the others in the house. And that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his whole household were baptized. This is a busy night for this guy, right? For Paul and Silas. And they brought, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. Now, Cassius. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family, his whole household. So that's the background. I'm just going to share you three thoughts. Paul and Silas used their mess for good. We have an opportunity to make what we're going through somewhat purposeful. And the three reasons that I think it's important to praise God and to give him thanks through your pain and trials. And I just share with you, this is something that God has been just hammering me with over the last number of years. And the first reason is simply this. First, you give him praise and thanks in the midst of this because you never know what God will do. You still know what God's going to do. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Things don't look good. They have no idea what's going to happen next. They don't have an idea what the outcome will be. It could be more suffering. They're just not really sure. But Paul and Silas, though they have no guarantees, know this one thing, that God is good, that God loves them, that God cares for them. And here's the thing that I think they knew was going on, that God's at work. One of the things that was really helpful for me a few years back 
was listening to a talk that Joyce Meyer gave, and one of the things she talked about is in all situations, in every situation, no matter what you're going to, you can always say this. If you're praying for someone and you're concerned about them, whatever, you can just say God's at work and, and then let it go. And that was so helpful for me. Because you never know what God's going to do. They had no idea that they began to sing and they began to praise that God would create this earthquake that would just shake their events of their life. They didn't know. But they knew that God was at work. They knew that God would use even this situation if they responded to it in this way that God would use it in their lives. And, and so when as I began to think about this and I began to pray about this and I began to say, you know, when you worry and you wonder and you, you feel fear and you're prone to discouragement, and I'm prone to discouragement, I can be melancholy when I move into those places. When you can't shut the voices off in your head, you can, by choice, make a decision to start to praise God and to give him thanks for what you have and to make this simple statement, God's at work. I don't know what he's going to do. And the second thing, just another simple thought, is another good reason, I think, to give thanks and praise to God in these kind of situations, whatever's going on in your life, how do you use it? You give praise and thanks because you never know who God will touch. See, I don't know what God's going to do There's no guarantee on it, but I know he loves me and I know he's at work in this situation no matter what he's using because he promises that he will use all things for those who love and trust him for good. If you go on to the next verse, it's the most telling one to basically conform you to become like our mission statement says, to become like Jesus. That's his whole purpose. That's your purpose. No matter what's going on, I got an opportunity to be like Jesus. But then you don't know what he's going to do, but you don't know who he's going to touch. So they're there, they're singing and praising God, and it says here in the scripture, verse 25, as they're praying and they're singing hymns to God, the other prisoners are listening to them. They're kind of going, they just got the snot beat out of them. You know what? They don't know what's going to happen next. And they're, they're, they're singing exuberantly, is what the word means, to God. So these guys now are listening, and... You know what you don't realize that when you go through something and you're going through the situation, you, you very seldom have an idea of who's looking on, right? You don't know who's just watching. I love what Terry Esau said when he got up here and he spoke that one Sunday morning. He said a lot of, if you look at your life, it's like balloons and footballs. There are certain times where God throws you a football, you grab it, you catch it, and you carry it for a while, and you help move this person along in their faith. And sometimes all you are is like in that crowd when that beach ball comes, not balloons, but beach balls, when that beach ball comes, you just touch it and move it on its way. In some ways, that's all they were doing. They were singing and praising these other prisoners around them, and they were just being like that beach ball. Something of their life was impacting those people. But what they didn't realize is what God had in mind. They had no idea that God, as he allowed this earthquake to happen, through this entire experience, would use it to bring a jailer to faith in God. And as I was thinking about this, the first time I kind of was preparing and going through this, I wonder if the guy in the vision was the jailer. And it could be a whole lot of people over there, but what if it was the jailer just crying out to God? What if the vision was him seeing this guy crying out to God, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. And Paul and Silas had no idea that they would touch his life and change his life forever. 
And the last thing that I... Only I, 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 one thing I was going to say about this. Here's, here's the whole thing. It's really difficult. And I... If, you know, I'm going to say, if you're like me, and I think some of you may be, it almost would be good to hang on our mirror or to put in a place where you see it on a regular basis, this little phrase, it's not about me. Right? It's just not about me. It's about what God might do. It's about God who he might touch. And the last thing I just, I want you to think about is finally... Praise and giving thanks in this situation you're in, you do so because you always know God blesses those who do. It is a command of God to do it. This is not kind of, well, if I feel like it, and most of us are prone to live in our feelings, if I feel like it, then, you know, I'll praise God. Now, I'm not talking about not being real and authentic and you kind of like, you know, acting like this stuff isn't real. No, you have real emotions. There's people here that I've talked to. You're struggling and working through it. But it still is a choice in the midst of the reality and the authenticness of that situation to be able to choose and say, God, I'm going to give you thanks. God, I'm going to praise you. God, I'm going to sing with my heart unto you because you commanded me to do that. And something happens to our own spirit when we do that. God begins to work. And not only does he begin to work, he works, I think, in nature. He works in things and people around us. In fact, I think it's interesting that Paul, when he would write to them later in Philippians, he says this, rejoice in the Lord sometimes. What does it say? Rejoice in the Lord. And then what does he say? Again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then, so he's writing to the people in Philippi, and he's saying, rejoice, you guys, I know you're going through difficult stuff, but just remember when I was in prison with Silas, and what God did when we began to sing and we began to praise and we were rejoicing in him, remember what God does. You never know what God's going to do. You have no idea who God's going to touch, and he always tells us that he will bless us. So he makes this little statement at the end as he's talking to two people who are kind of fighting. He says, I just want you to rejoice in the Lord always because you can always look to him and find joy. You can always look to him and know that he loves you. You can always look to him in the midst of the situation and choose to say, it's not about me. It's not even about this life. My life is eternal because of what he has done in my heart. And I'm going to rejoice. Now, the natural thing is not for us to do that. I mean, if I was sitting there with you, and I'm Paul and you're Silas, it would be real easy for us to be mad at God. You know, God, right, what's this vision of Macedonia thing? And, and, then, and then to be disappointed, we get here and there's only a few Jews, and, you know, what's that about? And then once we get here, you can just see Silas and Paul. Here's how Satan likes to work. Now we can get Silas and Paul mad at each other because it was Paul's vision and Silas is going, yeah, great when you got us into this time, Ollie. You know, that kind of thing. And, and then you, you also have this sense that they can be filled with the fear of what's going to happen. And, and that's our natural course. And then we miss the blessing. Because the blessing comes through praise and thanks and giving song to God. And he uses our pain in trials. But it always requires a choice. It's a sacrifice to praise, give thanks. Hebrews 13, 15 makes that really clear. Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. That might be a great verse just to memorize. Through Jesus, 
not in your own strengths, but through Jesus. Jesus, now I ask you to come and feel as I obey, feel my obedience, that I might continually, not sometimes, not once in a while, I want to feel like it, continually I will offer, I will give to God a sacrifice, because it costs, it hurts to do that. A praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. It requires faith. It requires that you believe that God is good, that God's at work, that God cares for you right where you're at, and that God will bless you in a obedient response to him. Now, I'm going to just kind of share with you this last story and, and kind of close on this, because I was, um, some of you know, like this last spring, I have an opportunity to host a, a, a vision weekend for a group called Langham Partnership. It was a, a fruit of the ministry from John Stott, who passed away a number of years, a few years back. But at this one, um, you know, we've had Sarah Groves here before. Sarah was singing, and the other person, one of the keynote addresses was given by Lee Strobel. And Lee was, um, came to faith in Christ at the Willow Creek Community Church. He was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. He's written a book called Case for Christianity, Case for Creation. And so he was there as a keynote speaker, and he starts sharing this story about how he was in a place where he was just going to obey God and just trust that God is going to bless him. It was soon after he came to faith in Christ. Here's this journalist, hardened journalist. His wife came to faith in Christ, Lee's wife, and he said, you know, I just was mad. I was angry that she came to faith in Christ. It was messing up our life, and eventually got a hold of my life. And he said, now I'm coming to faith in Christ. I've come to an understanding of it. And then I get this burden because the pastor is speaking. It's probably about a month or two before Easter. And he says, we're going to do a really neat Easter thing. I want you to pray about who you should talk to, who you should share your faith with, who you should be the message to. And so Lee, in obedience, a new follower of Christ, begins to start praying. And the Lord places on his heart that he should speak with the chief editor of the Chicago Trib, who he had you know, been in relationship with, but it was his boss. He's in this big office, and so Bill, uh, Lee finally gets the courage to come in, and, and he's going to share the message because he knows that you know, if he shares this, and so he says, I'm passionate, and, and I share this whole thing. You've got to come to our church Easter. It's going to be a great thing. It's a special service. It's designed for people who are maybe seeking, and, and he just lays this whole thing out, and the guy looks at him and goes, not doing it. And Lee was kind of like, oh, God, where are you? And kind of said a few more things and that was it and it got kind of cold and kind of you know you know how the relationship changes a little bit so lee's kind of going what's going on he's wrestling with this and he's wrestling with this for three four months and and as he's you know growing in his faith at one point they asked him to come on a sunday morning they asked him to share his faith story so this is like six months or so later after easter he's up there he shares his faith story he gets done and people come up and thank him for what he has to say one guy comes up and thanks him and, and, he, and he, he, he's kind of almost expecting like this guy should know him, and Lee doesn't know who he is. And the guy says, well, you know, I work at the Chicago Trib office. I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, yeah. You remember that day you came into the chief, you know, the editor's office? And he goes, yeah. And you were inviting him to the Easter service? Yeah. He goes, I was over in the corner in that office working on part of the wall. And you maybe didn't even notice me there, but all the time you were speaking, I had this deep conviction that I need to go to this service. And I came to that service and I found Jesus. And he's changed my life. I'm so glad I was in the room when you asked that guy to go to that service. We just never know what God will do, whom he will touch, but we always know that he will bless our obedience. 
Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you. I'm the, I, I'll just stand up and be the first to say, God, it's so natural for me not to do this, but the most wonderful thing is when we just look at you and we praise you, the things that seem so big in our eyes become so small when our eyes are on you. And we know this life is about how much you love us and growing in that relationship. And God, we pray in that process that we will learn to walk with you in obedience and we will live in the blessing of God even when we're not aware of what that blessing is. I pray for you right now. If you're in a place and you've just been crying out to God and you, it's been painful and you're just mired in that and you're just stuck, I pray now as you just open your heart and just say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and my life and move in such a way that you will become the anchor of my life. God might be speaking to you right now, just saying, you know what, it's, it's time just to kind of let go and your knuckles have been so tight holding on. I just want to grab hold of you. And what he wants to do right now is just put his arms around you and say, I love you, I care for you, I'm with you. Trust me.